Man, I love that song. Well, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is about love. Some would say, all we need is love, or all we need is more love. The phrase, all, all you need is love, comes from a popular song from the 60s. How many of you are courageous enough to say, I remember? Okay, you remember that. Love. Well, when we say the word love, a lot of things come to our mind. And I want to share some quotes from Kids' Unique Perspective. This is love according to kids. Concerning the origins of love, where love came from, Cupid kissed God and that got the ball rolling. That was Julio, age nine. Why love happens between two people. Andrew, age six, said, one of the people has freckles, so we find someone else who has freckles too. May, age nine, says, no one is sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. Then Manuel, age eight, says, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. On the role of beauty or handsomeness in love, Anita, age eight, says, if you want to be loved by somebody who isn't already in your family, it doesn't hurt to be beautiful. Brian, age seven, said, it isn't always just how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome like anything and haven't got anybody to marry me yet. Then Christine, age eight, says, beauty is skin deep, but how rich you are can last a long time. How do people in love typically behave? Arnold, age 10, said, mushy, like puppy dogs, except puppy dogs don't wag their tails nearly as much. <laughs> Concerning why lovers often hold hands, Gavin, age eight, said, they want to make sure their rings don't fall off because they paid good money for them. And how to make love last. This is important. Dave, age eight, said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. That's love according to kids. Well, as we grow older, we become more refined in our understanding of love. But to really understand love or true love, we must look to the creator of love, God, and his description of love, in his words, the Bible. Now, we looked at this passage. Um, it's probably the most well-known passage in Scripture because you hear it at every wedding. You hear it at all kinds of occasions. We actually looked at this passage about three years ago as we went through 1 Corinthians. But because this is the day of love, I really wanted us to look at this. I, I mean, it's like I need to look at this at least once a year on Valentine's Day, right? Anyway, so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. It's on page 932 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. As we look at love is all we need, that's the question today. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to read the first, look at the first eight verses in verse and verse 13. So 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, 
but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. In verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Today is Valentine's Day. It doesn't happen on Sunday very often. Like once every seven years, six years, however often it happens. Not very often. But it's the day of love. Now, what is love? Love is not just an idea. It's not even a motivation for behavior. Love is the behavior. Love is the action. Love here is not to be contrasted with spiritual gifts. The context is spiritual gifts, which every person in the church and the body of Christ has certain gifts that they give to one another and to the community. And this isn't just about spiritual gifts. Love is a different category altogether. Love is the way spiritual gifts are to function. It's the foundation of these things we call spiritual gifts. It's the overarching principle or context. Love permeates, in fact, love flows through these spiritual gifts as we utilize these gifts that God has given us. Now, in 21st century America, love can mean a lot of different things. It can mean emotions, warm fuzzies. It can mean sex. It can mean affection, concern, a lot of different things. So when you say love, all kinds of pictures come to people's minds. But in the Greek language, the original language in which the New Testament was written, there are three words for love, a much more precise way to actually define love. Many of you know these words. I just wanted to review that. The first one is eros which is physical or sensual love. Eros, which is physical or sensual love. Then there's phileo, brotherly love or platonic affection. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, comes from phileo. And these two words were used predominantly by the secular Greek writers to describe love. They were very familiar with that. But the writers of the New Testament did not use those two words very often. The Greek word used more often for love in the New Testament is agape. Many of you know the word agape. It's selfless love. This is what makes love in reality stand totally apart from these other types of loves. Agape is selfless love. Agape love is defined by God's action in sending Jesus Christ into the world. It's love acted out. It's action. Loving those who did not deserve love. Those who were unworthy of love. It's love that puts others' interests first. Love that forgives people, gives people a new start. Love that sacrifices for the good of others. It's love that comes from the nature of the lover rather than the merit of the loved. It's undeserved, undeserved love. That's agape love. And with that kind of love, we're going to look at two things today, two primary things. The importance of love and the character of love. The importance of love and the character of love. Let's start with the importance of love. In verses 1, 2, 3, 1 through 3, it talks about actions that people take. Our, our lives are consistent or consist of action. And as followers of Jesus, most of us, most of us do pretty good things. You know, most of us are 
you know, we're pretty good people. Our desire is to do good. We all want to have a positive impact. None of us would say, I'm trying to be the worst parent I can possibly be. Or I'm trying to be the worst employee on record. Or I'd like to have a reputation as the worst neighbor people have ever had. Um, We don't usually approach life that way. Most of us desire to be good and to do good. And the Corinthian people who this was written to, the people in that church, wanted to do good too. But Paul says... You're doing good, but there's a missing ingredient in all your good works. In your exercise of your religion and the exercise of your faith, there's a missing ingredient. What was that missing ingredient? It was love. It was love. Then he gives four areas in which love is missing. These four areas. The first one has to do with verbal gifts. And we won't spend a lot of time on this, but the first one had to do with tongues. Uh, people were exercising tongues, their gift for their own good or benefit to build themselves up. And he says, if you speak in tongues, use the gift of tongues without using the gift of tongues without love. He said, you're just making noise. You're You're just making noise. Love says, I exercise my gift, whatever it might be, for the benefit of others seeking to build other people up. And without love, he said, it's nothing. It's zero. It's worthless without love. Then there was prophecy. Prophecy is defined as speaking forth God's word. Now, this is a huge topic that's largely misunderstood. Basically, prophecy is taking a human instrument to speak his truth to this generation, typically. God taking a human instrument, speaking his truth to that generation. And the primary recipients of prophecy are the immediate people, the, the, that generation, that generation. But prophecy also, as we know, as we study prophecy in the Bible, is multidimensional. And it can include future fulfillments as well, sometimes more than one fulfillment. It can get really confusing. But in the simplest sense, prophecy is predictive. It's predictive. We always think of it as predicting the end times and all this other stuff. It's predictive in that it tells people This is what God says, and this is what will happen if you disobey God. Okay, This is what God says, and if you disobey God, this is what's going to happen. And all of the prophets in the Old Testament, you read that through Isaiah, they're predicting gloom and doom or blessing the people that follow God or don't follow God. And it's primarily to that particular generation, contemporary generation. Now, most often today... This is done, not exclusively, but most often it's done by the preaching of the word. And it's not a matter of this gift of prophecy or love, or even this gift motivated by love. Prophecy must be done by a person whose life is given to love. If there's not love, then it equals what? Zero. Nothing. He said there's nothing to it. Nothing to it. Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up. And as we speak the truth of God, whatever context that is, the question is, am I sharing this in love? Because if we don't share that without love or with love, there's nothing to it. Nothing to it. Now, then we get to the verbal, past the verbal gifts, we get to cerebral gifts, the mental gifts. Verse 2 talks about mysteries. They knew all mysteries and knowledge, knowing all knowledge. The Corinthians were 
enamored with knowledge. They were enamored with mysteries. And we have some people that just love knowledge. They love the mysteries. They love studying the deep truths of the Scripture, the Word of God. And we can study the Word of God, know the mysteries of God. We can know theology. We can know theology. We can know all that there is to know. Many here were raised in the church, and you understand all theology. But without love, it is zero. Nothing. It's worth nothing. Nothing to it. Then there's faith gifts. If we have faith powerful enough to move mountains. I don't know if you've ever literally tried to do that. Faith to move mountains. You say to this mountain, move. And if you have enough faith, you know, whatever. Um, That's a lot of faith. A lot of faith. Powerful faith. Faith for great things. But it says, even if you have this incredible faith, if you don't have love, it's zero. It's worthless. Those are powerful statements. Then he says, talks about giving or sacrificial gifts. He gives examples of great personal sacrifice. Giving everything to the poor. Giving everything to the poor. Most of us will give something, but talking about giving everything. Talking about sacrificing my body. And he says, even if you do that, if you don't have love, it's worthless. There's nothing. Now, the Corinthian church, these are people just like us, just like you and me. They had all the religious trappings. They did all the kinds of things that their faith called for. Tongues and prophecy, knowledge, faith, asceticism, or self-denial. But God was not impressed because they didn't have the ultimate ethic, which we celebrate, Valentine's Day, that ethic of love. And God said, without love, there's, there's nothing to it. It's empty, has no effect, has no lasting results. And as I look at that and look at the church today and look at our church, you know, we, we can have all the spiritual trappings, that, whether it's church attendance or church involvement. We can have great worship, and we do. We can have wonderful programs. We can give of our tithes and offerings. We can really support missions sacrificially. We can volunteer time for the needy. We can even abuse ourselves physically by overwork or fasting or denial of self, personal sacrifice. But without love, it amounts to zero, nothing. Nothing. Nothing to it. Now, one of the interesting things, if we go back and some here, this, this predates some of you who, who have been here just recently, or you're new, or you recently come, came to Eau Claire Wesleyan Church. In, in 2016, we did, a, we did what's called a natural church development survey. And what that does is it asks people in the church to rate the church on a numerical score in different ways in different categories of the church. Now, the church, we were busy. We had lots of activity. We had everything going on you can imagine. But we discovered that the lowest score on our survey was loving relationships. Loving, it was like one of the lowest scores I've ever seen. This busy, active Great church, record missions giving, all this stuff, all these great things about it. But what was missing was love. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. Now, two years later, we did this again. Amazing what happened. That doesn't mean we've arrived, now we're the perfect church. No, that's not it. But it does mean that we saw 
all this activity, all that activity, all the religious trappings, all of that meant nothing without love. And, and let me tell you something. People are not going to come and stay in a church if they don't sense love. I've had people tell me, wow, this church loves each other. There is love here. Now, we can't stop there. We have to go out there too. That's, that's, the, next, that's the next level of what do we, where do we go from here. But God has done great things in the life of this church. And I can honestly say, yes, we still have ministry and faith. and the- We have all of those, those things. But we do have in here love. We're not perfect, but there is love here. And it's critical that we have that love. Now, as we walk through the next verses describing the character of love, realize none of us can measure up, okay? That's one of the things you read the Bible and you go, oh man, I'm never going to make it. You know, you, you read those things, you read these saints of God and you say, I'm never, no. This is a, a question of journey. The question to ask as we look at this, and we're going to go through these pretty quickly, is where, where do I fall short? Every one of us will have strengths in these character qualities, and we will all have weak, weak areas, okay? Work areas. Where do I fall short? And where can I, ask the question, where can I, by God's help and grace, develop and prove because of my dependence on the Holy Spirit? The thing that we have to realize is that the Holy Spirit is in us working those things out in us and through us. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that this happens. It's not, I'm going to go and work harder. No, I'm going to submit more and let the Holy Spirit work through me. That's that's how love happens. That's how our lives are changed. Power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul moves on to describe love in actions and attitudes. Now, it may be difficult to define love, but it's easy to recognize by the way it acts. So let's look at the character of love. Character of love. Fifteen characteristics we're going to go through. First of all, love is patient. Love is patient. This is not so much patience with circumstances, although it includes that. It's more patience with people. Patience with people. Charlie Brown famously said in a Peanuts cartoon, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Patience with people. You know, people come up short. People try our patience. It happens. Now, most often for me lately, I find myself in a checkout. I don't know if you get to a grocery, the grocery store. You're, you look at all the lines. How many of you do that? You're going to try the fastest whatever line it is so you get through the fastest. So you, you look at like the eight lines at Festival or Walmart, whatever, at Woodman's. Those lines are crazy. You go to, and, and you look at that and say, I'm going to get that line. It looks the shortest. Well, God always puts me in line with somebody that's training. I don't know why it is. You know, he just wants me to, to learn patience with people. Okay, that's what happens. And, and Judy's much better at picking the right line. <laughs> I've got to learn to trust my wife. Anyway, we've only been married 40 years. I think I can start now. Patience with people. Gordon Fee writes, love is patience, love is kind. It, re- it represents respectively love's necessary passive and active responses toward others. Some of you know the King James Version for patience. It's love suffereth long. <laughs> love suffereth long. That's kind of descriptive. And God demonstrates this combination of patience and kindness. 
Patience by holding his wrath from us. Kindness by extending us grace. So patience. Love is number two, kind. Kind. This is the active side of patience. It's an action taken. It's sweet to all. It's graciousness. Many times in the practice of our faith, being concerned about morality and right and wrong, we are anything but kind. Anything but kind. Sometimes we're more concerned about being right than being kind. Love. Love is the foundation of this. Being gracious. It's active. It's not passive. This is actively engaged in doing good to others. Now we move on to verbs that indicate how love is not to behave. This is how you don't behave and demonstrate love. First one, number three, is love is not envious. Not envious. The root words mean envious or rivalry. Not jealous. Envy produces covetousness. Now there are, there are two ty- at least two types of covetousness. Covening, first of all, is coveting the possessions of what someone else has. It's very natural. We see it. We want it. Okay? You're very happy with your house, and then you go on the parade of homes, or you go look at something, and you go, oh, my goodness, I'd love to have that, that, and that. And pretty soon, you're envious of what other people have. Can't believe people have that kind of, that kind of a warm seat toilet. I mean, we need one of those, a heated toilet. If anybody has one of those, don't tell me. Okay, that's okay. We see, we compare, and we cover. The second type of coveting is more insidious. It's seeing what someone else has and wishing they didn't have it. Okay? One is wishing I had it. The other one is wishing they didn't have it. Insidious. The Corinthians here coveted the most dramatic spiritual gifts. And coveting, coveting springs from discontent. The question is, what kinds of ways are we not content? Contentment it says godliness with contentment is great gain. It really is true. Because contentment is really hard to come by. What does someone else have that you want? It might be material possession or wealth, a training or degree, a job or profession, a position or opportunity, a reputation, talents and abilities, family background, looks or physical appearances, a boyfriend or girlfriend, rivalry and competition between gifts. What does someone have that you want? We even have rivalry and competition between churches. I know that's not supposed to happen. I'm so grateful for the group of pastors that I meet with. Occasionally, we try to get together once a month, but some great pastors, about 15 of them in town. No competition, no rivalry, no jealousy, just great friendship with other pastors. We're not competing with other churches. We're working together in churches, supporting one another. And uh, especially during this, this craziness we've been going through. Fourthly, love does not boast. Love does not boast. How many of you like to look good? Oh, okay. I, I, nobody, I guess. There's a tendency in all of us, if someone else is not making us look good, no one notices, we'll call it our attention to it ourselves. And... For the Corinthian church, these people, there were some, some of the spiritual gifts were really attention getters. And, and when you look at this, Paul's largest corrective was on tongues and prophecy because they were the public gifts that people got up and they, they did stuff and they got attention for it. And, and that was this, this thing. And other people, I'm sure, said, man, I wish I had that gift. Wish I had that gift. Attention getters. 
I'm important. Well, Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. Let someone else and not your own lips. The contrast is humility or self-effacing. It protects us from having a false impression of our own importance. Now, we're all important in God's eyes. But putting that in context is important. Love does not boast. Number five, love is not proud or arrogant. Pride, of course, is the opposite of love, which has a, has a tendency of self-sufficiency and self-confidence. Most of us don't act arrogant because we know people don't like it when you're arrogant. And so you, we like to hide it. I told about when I was 18, a freshman in college, and knew everything. I was arrogant, but people didn't like to be around arrogant people, so I just hid it, you know. I just hid it, made sure people didn't know that I was arrogant. I was smart enough to know that they didn't want to be around arrogant people. But we can be proud and arrogant, self-sufficient, and hide it under a veneer of humility. Sooner or later, of course, we get found out. So next, love is not rude. It does not act unbecomingly. It's tactful. It's polite. Some people will excuse telling the truth without tact as spiritual. You know, they, they quote the, the passage, the gospel is an offense. I'm going to go out and offend people. Um, and they excuse being blunt or tactless or brutal. Love is not rude. Love is actually tactful. Now, it tells the truth, but tactfully. Tactfully, it's not rude. I think about the Sunday rush in restaurants. I know waiters and waitresses in restaurants that, that hate, if there's any day they hate to work, it's Sunday. Why? Because the predominant crowd is the Sunday crowd from church. And they describe people to me, and I've talked to waiters and waitresses, they've said they're people, they're demanding, they're arrogant, they're rude, impatient. And cheapskates, they don't tip very high. <laughs> they don't tip. There was one guy that bragged that he never left a tip of money, but he left a tip of eternal value attract. I thought, you cheapskate. You cheapskate. We ought to be the best tippers, whether it's 15, 20, 25%, whatever it is, that we actually are generous, not rude. Love does not act unbecomingly. Number seven, love is not self-seeking. doesn't seek its own. It's not selfish. Our whole society is permeated by selfishness. That's not seeking our own means, but for the good of others. We teach that happiness equals selfishness, and eventually we learn that it doesn't work very well. Number eight, love is not easily provoked. does not fly into a temper. Christian love never becomes exasperated with people. And of course, we all know that the Apostle Paul had no children. But, that's part of it. I, Judy said to me one day, she said, I didn't know I had a temper until I had kids. <laughs> so you don't have to admit, I, that, that was it. I, I knew that I had a temper long before I had kids. But that's, that's a different story. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Proverbs 17.27, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. How many of you have had kids in sports? Been in sports? Okay. 
Yeah, you know the, you know the feeling. One of, uh, one of my daughter's soccer coaches advised us in a parents' meeting before the season. said, I want you to encourage your kids, cheer for them, and never yell any sentence that begins or ends with the word ref. I said, what? What fun is that? You know, what fun is that? It, it's hard when you have kids in sport. We're, we're justice. It's got to be fair. And if they make a bad call, if they do something, you want to let him know. Amen? And just, just, just checking. See if you... I was seated at a basketball game next to a young father and his five-year-old son. And, and in front of us were were parents of high school guys that were playing in a basketball game. And they were using sentences that began and ended with the word ref. And this, this father of the five-year-old, was, he, was, he was mild-mannered and mellow, and you could see he was just getting really, really ticked off because these guys were pretty intense. And so we struck up a conversation at halftime, and I, I asked him if his son played sports. And he said, yes. He said, we, we play golf. I said, golf. I said, what does he know? Is golf a sport? It doesn't even have a ref to yell at. I mean, what's the deal? That was kind of, that's kind of the culture. Did you guys grow up like that? I mean, I know the Packers and whenever you go to games and stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah, okay. Making sure I'm not alone in this misery or whatever it is. Okay, so love next keeps no record of wrongs. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Take into account denotes taking a ledger writing it down, keeping notes so you don't forget. So somebody does something to you, I'm going to write that down. Seeking revenge. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It forgets, it forgives. We don't keep track. In marriage, we don't throw things up in our spouse's face. That's not love. And you know, Christians sometimes do the worst things to each other. I'll, I'll admit that. Christians are not immune. And if, you're, if you've been alive for 10 minutes and if you've been in church for two years or less, you know that Christians can do awful things to you. But rather than dwell on that, love keeps no record of wrongs. Our example, of course, is Jesus. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Talk about getting forgiven. Psalm 103, 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Love does not take into account or keep record or keep a ledger of wrongs. Number 10, love does not delight in evil. In other words, it doesn't celebrate evil, doesn't celebrate bad news. Anybody watch the news this week or online newspaper? Anybody? Okay, was there any bad news? <laughs> okay, was there any good news? That, that's the question. I, I used to get so sick and tired of watching this whole 30-minute broadcast of this, and then they say, and now for the good news. A two-second, yes, nice, okay. So there is something good in the world. Love does not delight in evil. Why do they do that? Because bad news sells. Inquiring minds want to know the dirt. That's what happens. And in a very perverse way, our culture celebrates evil and bad news. At least tell us the good news. That's what I want to say. See, it, it's, people take pleasure in someone else's misfortune. That's what happens. That's not love. We, we get much more eager to hear the bad news than the good news. Love keeps us from enjoying that perversion. 
In fact, did you know that gossip, the one thing, gossip, centers around bad news or misfortune? Did you hear what happened to... Yeah. Then there's competition. Competition. Um, competition, like covetousness, has two sides. The positive side, of, and, and co good competition is good. Competition can be doing the very best so I can win. That's, that's great. But the negative side of competition is wanting our opponent to do the worst possible or fail or get hurt so that I can win. That's a different thing. That's wanting the worst. One delights in evil, one delights in good. Eleven, rejoices with the truth. Rejoices with the truth. Um, to rejoice with the truth, one must first believe there is truth. Just saying. And since evil and truth are contrasted in verse 6, truth most likely here refers to the good news of the gospel, the word of God. And there are times we'd rather not hear the truth. Okay? You don't want to hear the truth. You know the saying, somebody said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, but first it may make you miserable. And that is true. Christian love has no desire to hide the truth of God. It wants the truth known. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, we have an issue with biblical truth today, and we seem to know that. We know that um, many millennials, teens, 20-somethings like to talk about their beliefs. And many like to profess, and they will profess a belief in God. But they won't use the word Jesus. God, yes. Jesus, no. Many profess to believe in God. In fact, many who are professing Christians will talk about their belief in God, but never talk about the name Jesus. Why? Because God is a generic term. It's universal, inclusive, non-offensive. And the majority of people believe in God. So you talk about God in a general sense. Most people in America say they believe in God. Whatever he, she, it means to you is God. Okay. But use the word Jesus and, whoa, people get offended. Why do they get offended? Because Jesus claimed to be the exclusive way to God. It's the only way to God. And if you claim that, that means you're right and they're gasp. <gasps> wrong. We can't tell people they're wrong. If you hold to a truth, people get upset about that. Love rejoices in the truth because it is only through the truth of Jesus that people can be set free. Love rejoices in the truth, all truth. Now, along with that, we all want to hear the truth about God's love and forgiveness. God forgives everything. But if we only talk about God's Love and not God's judgment, it's only half true. Only half true. We must not be selective in the truth. We must rejoice in truth, all of it. We can't talk only about heaven. We must also warn about hell. Now, you've got to be careful in that context. I remember one summer I worked as a, as a lifeguard with, with three other people that they didn't profess to be Christians, and I was with them all summer. Um, they were, they were the normal 20-something crazies. They knew that I was a seminarian, so they didn't know what to believe of me. But I spent a summer 
gaining understanding, building relationship. And in the last week that I worked with Vince, his name was Vince, we had enough of a relationship, and I had earned the opportunity and the right to share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ and to warn him about the dangers of end times and hell. Now, if I had done that the first week, he'd have never talked to me again. But I owed it to him to warn him, not tell him only the good news of Jesus, but also warn him about the dangers of hell. And sometimes that's a risk. It's a risk we, sometimes we're unwilling to take. But if, they, if people know you care about them, know you love them, you've earned the right to share the truth, all of the truth. And we need to share with people the whole truth. Whole counsel of God. Number 12, love puts up with anything. Love puts up with anything. That's the message. Bears all things, always protects. Endurance, it'll endure all things. Any insult, any injury, any disappointment. Love covers a multitude of sins. And we all experience injustice, even abuse. That doesn't mean staying in an abusive relationship. In fact, love may dictate getting out of an abusive relationship. But love is putting up with a lot. Putting up with a lot. I can love my enemies. That's kind of the abstract. But when it's a friend or neighbor or somebody from my family, sometimes that's harder. Love does, some, if somebody like that does something to unjust, it hurts me, it's hard. The closer the relationship we have, the deeper the wound. And so sometimes the people closest to us hurt us the worst. But love puts up with anything. It bears all things. Number 13, love always trusts. It believes all things. This is not a childlike naivety and not being gullible. It's just trust. When we love, we trust. We give the benefit of the doubt. We think the best, not the worst. The older we get, the more stuff of life we experience, the more cynical we get. People disappoint us, people hurt us, they abuse us, betray us. So we just quit thinking the best. It's safer to not think the best. It's just easier. That's why we need supernatural help. We just need supernatural help. It's not in us. It's not natural. You remember the Gatorade commercial that shows fluorescent liquid coming out of the pores of the athlete working out? Remember that if you've seen that? And then the question is, is it in you? Is it in you? Some of the stuff by the Holy Spirit is in us, but it's really hard. It's really hard. It's, it's not natural for that to happen. I've used this illustration. When you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? When you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? Whatever's inside the lemon. Whatever's inside. When you get squeezed, what comes out? Oh, whatever's inside. It comes right squirting past your nice personality and everything, you know, just happens. We get squeezed. Is it in you? Is love in you? Love always trusts. Number 14, love always hopes. It's always future eyes. Never ceases to have faith. Never gives up. Always hopes. And number 15, love always perseveres. It perseveres. Always endures through every circumstance. And this verb, it's important that we understand what it says. It's not passive. In other words, it's not just a passive acceptance of something. Endures is an active, actively overcoming and conquering. 
Love that can conquer and overcome all things. Love is powerful. That's the character of love. Then we get to verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us this picture in the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God, we just pray that you would, on this day, as we're just celebrating love in, a, in, in sometimes a, a trite way, sometimes in a deep way, but I just pray, God, that you, by your grace, would make us a people of love. And Father, that 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 love would not just be for our family and for our church family, but you would begin to make us aware of those outside that need that love as well. And God, many of us aren't sure how to do that and what to say and how to approach that. But we know that love, love does incredible things. And your love reached out to us it was so overwhelming. It was reckless. It was a pursuing love. And I pray, God, that you would give us that kind of love for those out in our community that desperately need it right now. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?